Well, I was going to say, if we haven't met before, my name is Brent Smith, but that's come under criticism as of late, so now I just don't know what to say. I don't know how to even open anymore. I've been told that if I say, if you don't know me, my name is Brent Smith, what are the people who know me are supposed to call me? Right? Right? See? Charlotte's got it. It's okay. We just call you BS. Yes. Woo. Now we're off to an interesting start. So whether you know me or whether you do not know me, my name is Brent Smith, and uh, we're certainly glad that you've joined us this morning, and uh, if it's your first time with us, just bear with us. Things don't necessarily get better. You just get more used to it as we go. Uh, We're going to start with with something a little bit different. Maybe my title has already got your attention, but we're going to start with a video this morning, Uh, a little out of the ordinary, I know, but... Uh, we're going to start with a bit of an educational video, and then uh, it might make sense later, or you might just say, why in the world did he show that video at the first? But we'll see. All right? I'm willing to take the risk. So here we go. A little educational video for us, and then we'll get into the Word this morning. Here at Caerphilly Castle, they have a working counterweight trebuchet, the king of medieval siege artillery. Well, I'm yet to have a go. Here in Wales, they have a modern replica of a medieval technological breakthrough. Malcolm, how are you doing? Very well, Dan. Right, I mean, this really is the the biggest bit of siege artillery we've got here, isn't it? Absolutely, the counterbalance trebuchet. How does it work? Well, basically what we're going to do, myself and you will be on the front here on what we call the winch team. So we're going to put our bars in and start to roll it forward. To the rear is a siege crew. They will pull, so in sequence, we should be able to get this machine back with the counterbalance up in the air ready for loosing and shooting out into the moat. And that is a big old counterbalance. I mean, how, how much weight is in there? You're looking at about two and a half tonnes wow. in weight. So you're I'm going to be working hard for a couple of minutes and a helmet would be excellent advice. Right. These trebuchets pack some serious punch. The biggest are said to have had a counterweight box the size of a peasant's hut. The projectile at the end of the arm would generally weigh two to 300 kilograms. This is not a quick-fire weapon, is it? Absolutely not, Dan. It's a slow process, this one. Heave! The key to this actual machine is to make sure that you're working in tandem with the siege crew at the rear. Heave! It certainly tests your fitness, Dan, if nothing else. And what range will these be expected to go? Oh, again, this will be a good uh, small machine. A couple of hundred metres, but the large machine's up to 450 metres. 450 metres? Absolutely. Heave! So this is long distance, heavy calibre. This is for knocking over big walls. Absolutely. Heave! Now, as you can see, this is where the machine's at its most dangerous. Now, you have an engineer underneath loading the ammunition to be, to be launched. We're he, very cautious. He has to trust his mates, doesn't Absolutely. he? Absolutely. So we'll go over to get the trigger switch for you. And you've really got to yank it as hard as you can. It's okay. quite a pull because, as you can appreciate, You've got two and a half tons in the air. Prepare to loose. Loose!
right. Fun. I don't quite have the opening that Mark had last week about sex in heaven, but I do have trebuchets, <laughs> so there is that. Can I just say, I would love to have that guy just follow me around in my life, and whenever I said something, he said, absolutely. <laughs> it would be so just confidence building. You just question anything, and he just says, absolutely, right? Anyway, so ever since I was a young boy, I was fascinated with, with, uh, with kind of that medieval warfare, and I would go to the library and get books about history and war, especially that. Uh, time frame, and I played Age of Empires on the computer infinitely longer than I let my son have any screen time. Uh, but part of the allure of it all was the, the siege weapons, the catapult and the ballista and the trebuchet. And if you don't know what those things are, that's fine. But they were fascinating to me. And uh, they were these simple but impressive contraptions. They were hurling objects through the air. And uh, and I was just fascinated with them. In Mark's illustration last week where the boy asked, is there chocolate involved? I feel like at that age I would have said, are there trebuchets involved? Uh, but that's just kind of the nerd that I was, okay? Uh, and I'm fine with that. Some of you are quite intrigued about Mark's message last week. Uh, it's online. Don't listen to it now while I'm preaching, but uh, I don't want to see anybody putting any earbuds in. But you can listen to it uh, this afternoon. So, uh, I love siege weapons, and now you know what a trebuchet is. I had to show that video because some people, I realize, are not as nerdy as I was about medieval warfare and would not uh, know what a trebuchet was. And so, uh, as you saw in the video, the trebuchet itself can be quite complex, and the physics of getting the proper weight and the length of the arm uh, can require some thought. But the simple science behind it is that the energy of a falling counterweight launches a projectile and for maximum launch speed the counterweight must be much heavier than the projectile obviously and uh, because this means that it will fall quickly and so some of the biggest trebuchets could launch a 300 pound stone over a thousand feet so to give you a really vivid picture that is almost like launching me to the emergency room from here okay which I would then need the emergency room, but that gives you a bit of an illustration of, of how powerful they were. Uh, one, once uh, they were quite popular, but when the gunpowder arrived, they basically disappeared, and uh, the last time a trebuchet was used in war was in 1521, and I included this story for my friend Santiago. It was when Hernan Cortez was now attacking, was attacking Mexico City, and the gunpowder had run out, and so Hernan Cortez ordered that a trebuchet be built there uh, as they were out front of the city, and they built the trebuchet, and it took several days and weeks to build the trebuchet, and they fired it, and the rock went straight up in the air and came straight back down and obliterated the trebuchet. <laughs> that would be hilarious to watch <laughs> as you were standing on the walls of Mexico City. That would be a good laugh. But as we said, the trebuchet works by the energy of a weight going down in order to launch a projectile up. The energy of a weight going down for the purpose of launching a projectile up. And it's this basic principle that we see when we read Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 11. 
So I think if Paul had seen a trebuchet in his lifetime, he probably would have referenced it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, because it's all about one thing being lowered so that another thing can be elevated. Okay, so that's what really stood out to me as I, as I read this chapter this week was the trebuchet. And so I've titled this message, Love Like a Trebuchet. Uh, and so uh, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to begin in verse 7. We looked at the first of this section uh, last week or two weeks ago. We looked at the first few verses. I have no idea where my Bible is. There it is. There we go. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to read 7 uh, through to the end of the chapter. All right. So Father, we're just uh, so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that uh, you've revealed yourself to us. Uh, through your word. We're so thankful for the way that you've been speaking and encouraging us this morning. And uh, we recognize, Father, that when we come to your word, uh, the enemy wants to distract us. Our, our own flesh wants to just dismiss the power of your word on our lives. We pray, Father, for focus this morning. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that we could understand your word, that we could apply it to our lives, that we would be changed by it. Father, that's our prayer. We want to be encouraged more towards you. We want to be built up in faith. We want to be more conformed into the likeness of your Son. And so, Father, we pray uh, that you would do that. We pray that you would come now and that you would just reveal the wonderful things contained in your Word to us. And so we pray, Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you want to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 7. And Paul says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Or in the NIV, it says, Did I commit a sin by lowering myself that you might be elevated? See? Trebuchet, right? Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burden, burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as, as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves, 
For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was drift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands." All right, so as we said, we looked at the first of chapter 11 last time where Paul expresses his desire for the Corinthians to have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ and not be led away from that by Satan. Uh, We didn't touch on it last time, but throughout the chapter, you probably noticed that Paul keeps saying things like, verse 1, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Verse 16, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. Verse 17, I say these things as a fool. Verse 21, I am speaking as a fool. Verse 23, I am talking like a madman. You've noticed that throughout the chapter as we've read. Uh, but so he's, it's like he's continually interrupting himself uh, to make it clear to the Corinthians that what he's doing here in chapter 11 is being foolish in what he's saying. He, he needs to make that clear because throughout the chapter... And into the next, Paul is boasting. He talks about that. His boasting is foolish for two reasons. First, his his boasting is foolish is because it focuses on himself. It focuses on Paul, on his own character, on his own personal spiritual experience instead of calling attention to God. And secondly, it's foolish because for the majority of it, he's boasting about his own weakness. He's boasting about his own weakness. And to the world, that doesn't make sense. It's foolish. And so the things that uh, his opponents in Corinth boast about, Paul thinks of as foolish. And Paul boasts freely in that which they think is foolish. So Paul is writing this way in chapter 11 because he realizes that desperate times call for desperate 
measures. We've been following this kind of saga of the Corinthians and how they've been being led away from Paul, and there's other guys coming in, these super apostles, and they're leading uh, the Corinthians away from Paul, away from the gospel. And Paul recognizes in chapter 11 that things are getting desperate, and so desperate times call for desperate measures. The situation has gotten to a point where Paul realizes that he needs to shine a light on their folly. He's going to need to foolishly boast like his opponents, those who are leading the Corinthians away. And it's evident as you read through that doing so makes Paul extremely uncomfortable. But he says if the Corinthians can put up with the opponents who are truly fools, then they should be able to put up with him as he plays the fool here in 2 Corinthians 11. So that's sort of the context for chapter 11. As we saw last week, Paul has a father of the bride love for the Corinthians, and seeing how desperate the situation is, he's willing to go to extreme measures to reach them with the truth, even to the point of playing the madman and boasting like he does, boasting in his weakness in order to hopefully reach them. And so in doing so, Paul gives us a clear picture of what his love for the Corinthians looked like. He said in his opening verses that his fear was deception, that they'd be deceived and led away. His desire for them was devotion. And that flows out of a deep love, that father of the bride love that Paul has for the Corinthians. And now he will show the Corinthians what that love looks like. And so I have one main point this morning, and I'll tell you what it is now, and then we'll unpack it a bit. But my main point is this. It's that love is lowering ourselves for the purpose of elevating others. Love is lowering ourselves for the purpose of elevating others. And we see this in Paul's opening line of this section in verse 7, where he says, did I commit a sin by lowering myself so that you might be elevated? Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you may be exalted? Paul's not legitimately wondering. He's expecting the Corinthians to say, no, no, you did not commit a sin. No, it was not sin. It was love. That's the expected response that Paul wants by asking that question. Did I commit a sin by lowering myself so that I might elevate you? No, Paul, it was not a sin. It was love. But in case the Corinthians' response is, how, how have you lowered yourself for us? For the rest of the chapter, Paul, through his foolish boasting, he gives the Corinthians a clear picture of how he has lowered himself for their elevation, how he has humbled himself for their exaltation. And so I have three points and three questions to help us apply, help us evaluate our own lives. And just to say, uh, as we look at the ways that, that Paul has lowered himself and we look at these questions to help us evaluate our own love, these questions were, have been weighing heavy on me. So I'm not asking you these questions like I've got it all figured out or that I'm excelling at the answers to these questions myself. And so this morning we're sitting under the Word 
and, uh, and we want the word to shape us. We want the word to change us. And I believe that's what he's going to do this morning. God through his word. And so first, uh, we're going to look at how Paul lowered himself from financial security. The first lowering of Paul is he's showing the Corinthians that he lowered himself from financial security. We see that in verses 7 to 9. Paul had planted the Corinthian church. He had spent a year with them, raising them up. He spent countless hours and energy pouring into them. He could have very easily and even legitimately said, pay up, pay up. He could have done it nicely. He could have done up a glossy brochure with some heart-wrenching photos of other poorer churches he was serving and a compelling paragraph how God told him he needed the new camel to travel faster between his churches and a convenient tear-off thing at the back that they could fill out. But he didn't do that. He said he was going to preach free of charge. Paul recognizes the situation, how things are strained, how the Corinthians are already being bullied by the super apostles there, the false teachers, and his heart swells in love for them. And he says, no, I'll preach free of charge in Corinth. These people are burdened enough. And he honestly tells the Corinthians, look, I've already been given enough support by the church in Macedonia. I've got enough. I'm content. Don't worry about it. And when my needs arise, I'll trust that God will provide those needs as well. Now, if you remember, the Corinthian church was one of, if not the, wealthiest church that Paul oversaw. Corinth was, uh, because of where it was seated, uh, situated geographically, it had two ports, one on either side. It was a booming trade town. It was full of wealth. It was an entertainment capital. It was a rich, thriving center full of stadiums and paved streets and parks and fountains. It was the place. Pastor Ray Stedman, who's from California, he referred to First and Second Corinthians as First and Second Californians. So that gives you an idea of what Corinth was like. And so think of the temptation on Paul to accept payment here in Corinth the financial security that could be his if he just asked. doesn't need to be a big burden. Why don't I just, a little burden, and I'd be financially set. Because I know what's in the pockets of those people that I'm preaching to. And if I just, just a little bit, and then I would be set. But he refuses. He knows doing so would prohibit the Corinthians from seeing any difference between him and these health and wealth bully apostles that were beating up the church. In Paul's time, much like today, philosophers and speakers charged a fee uh, and took money for their teaching, and since a free or cheap message implied that the message itself was not worth much. And so one commentator speaking on this verse, he called it the Harvard principle, where fees are charged in accordance with the perceived status although the actual quality of the instruction may or not match the price tag. I'm not sure where he went to school, but I have a guess it was not Harvard. Just a guess. But the Harvard principle, and Paul is basically telling the Corinthians, I have what I need. I have what I need. 
So imagine what it would sound like these days for the TV preacher to finish his pre-recorded message and then it cuts to him standing in front of a nice backdrop and he says, I hope you've encouraged, been encouraged by this message and I just want you to know I have enough. I am content and you don't need to send me anything. That's what Paul is doing to the Corinthians. He's saying, I have enough and I'm not going to put any burden on you. And this way of thinking led Paul's opponents to say, why are you following this Paul guy? He doesn't even charge anything for his message because his message is worthless. That would be what was said in Corinth. He doesn't charge anything because his message is worthless. And Paul says in verse 11, no, it's because of love. It's because of love. He says, and why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Don't make any mistake that the appeal of money was as powerful for Paul as it is for you and I today. And the temptation on Paul was great, but out of love, Paul willingly lowers himself from financial security in order that he might elevate the Corinthians. He lowers himself from financial security in order that he might elevate the Corinthians. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we share this love that we see in Paul? Are we willing to be lowered from the security that money brings in order to see others elevated? Maybe that means we turn down that promotion because we know that the time and the focus and the energy it would require would mean that we wouldn't be able to serve our family or our community or our church in the ways that God has called us to. Maybe it means that we take a closer look at what our needs are and then we are generous with whatever we receive that is beyond that. For different people, it will look differently, but our question to ask ourselves from looking at Paul and how he lowers himself from financial security is, do we love the false security money brings more than the real people that God brings into our life? Do we love the false security that money brings more than the real people that God brings into our life? Paul was willing to be lowered from that financial security in order that he might see the Corinthians elevated. Probably the most striking section of this chapter comes in verse 23 to 29, and that's where we see that Paul was not only willing to be lowered from financial security, but he was also willing to be lowered from physical comfort. The easy life with no pain or no discomfort, no trial, no difficulty, no hardship that we work so hard to preserve. In love, Paul willingly lowered himself from that in order that he might elevate the Corinthians. When I was in my early 20s, I had a job working in a mill where we manufactured log homes. It was in Nakwick, and I worked in this building in the lumber yard, and it was elevated a bit, and it just had three walls. It was open on one whole side. And I worked at this very large planer. 
it was huge. It probably would be that row right there. And uh, we put rough lumber, rough six by six in one side, and it came out the other side, having planed all four sides and shaping it into a usable piece for uh, the log homes that we built. And a forklift would come up, it would drop off a bundle of six by six as I worked on this end, and then I would feed it through, and there was a guy on the other end, and he would stack it, and then the forklift would come and, and pick it up, the finished bundle. And the planer was so loud that you wore ear protection, and you couldn't hear a blessed thing. It was so loud. And you had your ear protection on, and like people could yell right in your face, and you couldn't hear a thing. And so a bit of a joke they used to do, because when you work in those kind of monotonous jobs, you do stupid things to bring excitement to your life. <laughs> and so as I fed stuff into the planer, sometimes when guys walked in the lumber yard, they would throw large rocks up and hit the wall as I worked. Okay, and you'd be like, whoa, there's a rock. And, uh, but if you've never worked monotonous labor type jobs, then you have no idea. But if you have, then you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so one time I, uh, I looked out as I was working away and I saw the guy pick up the rock. And, uh, and he was walking out in the lumber yard and he saw that I saw and he kind of smiled. And he gave the rock a, a bit of a whip pitch like that up into the building. And the next few minutes kind of played out, or the next few seconds, or one second, played out in super slow motion. So that you say, oh, look, he threw the rock. And then you think, oh, it's coming right towards me. And then it's like, that is going to hit me in the face. And I had an, just enough time to turn for it to hit me in the soft spot behind my ear. And everything went black and blurry, and it was pretty intense. And he ran up, and he felt so bad. And I felt like I was, I was all lightheaded, and I was going to throw up and all that stuff. But I tell you that story because that's probably the most pain that I've ever gone through. And I think for most of us in the room, you know, give or take a little up or down, it's probably right around there. Some of us have probably endured a lot more pain than that, but for the majority of us, as we sit here in a nice room in Atlantic Canada on cozy seats, that's pretty much the pain level that we have gone through, give or take. Just wait. Wait till we get here. That's why I said give or take. Some more, some less. But we have, relatively speaking, gone through very little physical pain and suffering. And when we read these things in verses 23 to 29, Paul isn't telling these, these things to gain pity from the Corinthians or as some kind of macho display of his toughness. On the contrary, he's showing the Corinthians his weakness and he's laying the groundwork of the principle of the high calling of an apostle was more likely to involve a leather strap for his back than leather shoes for his feet. And so for the next few minutes, we're just going to walk through what Paul experienced as an apostle, as a servant of Christ. 
He says in verse 23, he had far greater labors in his evangelistic and pastoral work, long nights, long travels. He had far greater labors. He had far more imprisonments. Only one instance is recorded in Scripture in Acts 16, but Paul must have been thrown in jail quite frequently. And this anointed man of God was quite used to rat-infested and disease-ridden prison cells. Countless beatings. Paul isn't talking about a, a verbal beatdown. He's not talking about a hit to his financial portfolio. He's talking about countless physical beatings. Often near death. Think about that phrase, often near death. Often near death. I can't say as I've come near death even once. And Paul says, often I was near death. When Paul looked over his life, he had countless experiences where he could see, God preserve me, I should be dead. God preserve me, I should be dead. He was often near death. As he moves on into verse 24, his description of what he endured only ramps up. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. This practice among the Jews finds its origin in Deuteronomy 25, where it says that a guilt, if a man is found guilty and deserves to be beaten, you are not to do more than forty beatings. And in the first century during Paul's time, the blows were administered by a three-strap whip, 13 lashes to the chest, and then they flipped you over and gave you 26 to your back. And Paul doesn't say what his offense was, but most likely he would have been charged with blasphemy for preaching Jesus as the Messiah. And the fact that Paul endured this beating once bears witness to his evangelistic efforts. But what does the second beating show? It shows Paul's love for those he preached the gospel to. It shows his concern for their souls. I mean, think about it. He went through that once, 13 to the chest, 26 to the back, and then there would have been a point in time in Paul's life where he was in a situation where he had an opportunity to preach the gospel to someone knowing that if he did that, he would go through that torture again. There was a point in his life where he say, this person needs to hear the gospel, but I know if I do it, I'm going to go through that again. That pain would have been etched in his mind. The wounds could have still been fresh. And yet Paul, in love, shares the gospel and goes through it again. Goes through it again. He lowers himself from physical comfort so that he might elevate others towards Jesus. And he didn't just do it twice. So if the second beating gives us a glimpse of Paul's love for those that he ministered to, then what does the third time show? And the fourth time? And the fifth time? He knew what was coming. And yet in love, 
He says, I'm willing to be lowered again for my physical comfort so that I might elevate others towards Jesus. I just struggle to even wrap my head around it. I can understand going through it once because you could almost plead ignorance. But the second time and the third time and the fourth time and the fifth time. Paul says, three times I was beaten with rods. If scourging was a Jewish punishment, here we see the Roman punishment. Unlike the Jews, the Romans had no set limit for how many blows one might give and the beating could be applied anywhere. And Paul went through it three times. Once I was stoned. We read about this, read about this in Acts 14, where a mob in Lystra arose and stoned Paul and drug him out of the city. And it was good for Paul that it was more of a spontaneous unorganized act of rage because had it been a Jewish stoning, he would have not survived. He says, three times I was shipwrecked. And since this was written before Acts 27, we know that Paul endured for at least four of these frightening experiences. And he tells us, next, at least one of those shipwrecks led him to spend 24 hours bobbing up and down in the sea, clinging to a piece of wreckage. From there, we read that Paul was on frequent journeys. He never settled down or settled in, and those journeys meant he was in situations where he experienced dangers, dangerous floods and rapids from rivers, dangerous pirates and bandits that were so common as he transported money from church to church. Danger from his own people, the Jews, danger from Gentiles. Everywhere Paul turned, there were people against him. Danger in the city, the wilderness, the sea, every place that Paul put his feet, there was difficulty. And then at the end of this section, he says, danger from false brothers. Probably the most hurtful peril of all. Being almost swept up in the rising flood of a river is one thing, but having your legs cut out from under you by one you thought was a friend is quite another. These eight dangers are followed by six hardships. And if it seems like it never stops, it's because it never stopped. It's because it never stopped. Toil and hardship. Sleepless nights. Most likely voluntary as Paul traveled to the next city, interceded in prayer for the churches, or probably was just in too much pain to sleep. Sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, the result of too little money, too much travel, Paul would have faced numerous occasions when food and water were in limited supply. Right after that, he says, often without food, which can also be translated often in fasting. And so here's this man who was so often uh, hungry because he had nothing, then also choosing times to be without food so that he could devote himself more to what God had called him to. And in cold 
and exposure, probably a result of his extended imprisonments. And the way Paul begins verse 28, where he says, apart from other things, shows that what's coming next is, in Paul's mind, the pinnacle of his suffering. He's saving his biggest suffering for lack for last and it's not another beating and it's not another shipwreck or imprisonment he says apart from other things there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches and so paul isn't laying in bed at night concerned that the next day he might endure a beating or a stoning he's laying in bed at night and his concern is first and foremost the spiritual welfare of those he has led to christ It's stunning what Paul endured for them, what his body went through, what his heart went through. He is willing to be lowered from comfort for them. On reading these verses, D.A. Carson says of Paul, here is no mere professional running a superb organization from the comfort of a well-appointed, air-conditioned office, but a pastor attuned to the needs of even the least brother for whom Christ died. Organization and competent administration there are, as a close study of the comings and goings of Paul's numerous assistants reveals. Nevertheless, this apostolic ministry is not discharged with aloof detachment, but with flaming zeal, profound compassion, evangelistic fervor, and a father's heart. Paul engages all his considerable intellectual and emotional power in his ministry to the whole church, Such an approach bears fruit, but it takes its toll in energy consumed and in deep involvement with people. And so this approach to life and ministry, it's not not just reserved for the anointed apostle like Paul. As Gary reminded us on Thursday night, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And so committed to the growth and the health of the church. So what we see in Paul, we can't just cast it off and say, well, that's, he's an apostle. And so sure, he's going to lower himself from physical comfort. But thankfully, I don't have to go through that. When I read that section this week, I thought, what would Paul think of when he hears us talking so much about being willing to step out of our comfort zone? I have not even heard there was a comfort zone. (laughs) We lay our hands on him, and the comfort zone fell upon him. And he went through the rest of his life easy and comfortable. Guys, you and I will never experience the things that Paul went through unless God calls us to another country or our country dramatically changes. We will probably never experience those things that Paul went through. We will probably never be lowered from our physical comfort like Paul was lowered from our physical comfort. But reading these things from Paul, we should ask ourselves, has the value I place on my own comfort 
limited my ability to love in the ways God wants me to love? Has the value I place on my own comfort limited my ability to love in the way God has called me to love? It could be as stunning as moving halfway around the world to bring the gospel to those who haven't heard, as we saw in the video on Thursday night. Or it could be as simple and seemingly insignificant as your child saying, Daddy, I want to play, and all you want to do is sit on the couch and watch TV after a hard day's work. Are you willing to be lowered from your comfort for the elevation of others? Has the value you place on your own comfort limited your ability to love in the ways that God has called you to love? Paul was willing to be lowered from physical comfort. As he finishes the chapter, he tells a story that at first seems quite out of place and a bit random, but this story too has a purpose and it fits right in with the theme that Paul is running with. At the very end, he says, at Damascus, the governor under King Arteris was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. And here he's showing the Corinthians that in his love for them, in his desire for them to be elevated, not only is he willing to be lowered from financial security, not only is he willing to be lowered from physical comfort, but he's also willing to be lowered from personal honor. Again, Carson writes, probably it was the event that shattered whatever residual pride still lurked in the proud heart of Saul the Pharisee. He had set out for the city of Damascus with the avowed intent of rounding up Christians. He left the city not as the hunter, but as the hunted. This toast of high rabbinic circles, this educated and sincere Pharisee, this man who had access to the highest officials in Jerusalem, slunk out of Damascus like a criminal, lowered like a catch of dead fish in a basket whose smelly cargo he had displaced." And so the one who left for Damascus to persecute the Christians left Damascus as a persecuted Christian himself. There was a custom in ancient Rome in which a unique military honor was awarded for courage to the first soldier to scale the walls of an enemy during an attack. And so it's a striking story on Paul's part. While the typical Roman hero is first up the wall, Paul is first down the wall. Paul is showing the Corinthians what it means to be a true hero, being lowered in a basket at night to escape. There's no honor there. They're not handing out any medals for the first down a wall in a basket. There's no crowd or applause as the basket thumps against the ground. Paul has lowered himself from honor that he might elevate the Corinthians in love. And so for us, we need to ask ourselves, have we let the praises of some shape and direct our love for the others? Have we let the praises of some shape and direct our love for others? What value do we place on being honored? And would we rather be first up the wall and get the medal, 
or are we willing to sit in the obscurity of an old fish basket and be lowered down the wall if it means that we've been faithful to what God has called us to? It could be that those we elevate are the ones that get the attention. How comfortable are we with that? To go back to the picture of the trebuchet, no one is standing and giving praise to the counterweight. All eyes are fixed on that flaming projectile going, tearing down the wall and bringing victory. Are we content to be the counterweight that lowers ourselves so that others might be elevated? Paul opened this section by asking, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you? And I think the answer is clear. No, it was not sin. It was love. It was love. Paul was willing to be heavy with suffering. He was willing to be heavy with insecurity. He was willing to be heavy with personal shame. He was willing to be lowered in humility in order that the Corinthians might be flung He was willing to do it out of love for them. Only the humble can do that. Only those willing to be lowered can elevate others in that way. Because as we humble ourselves, we're freed from being preoccupied with the weaknesses of others. We don't need to get caught up in the do they deserve this? What have they done? Do they deserve me being lowered for them? That humility enables us, like that trebuchet, to freely lower ourselves and endure suffering and endure a heavy heart and endure humiliation and endure no recognition in order that we might be counterweights, projecting others up into heights of Christian maturity and to distances of ministry, building the kingdom of God that they otherwise could not reach. Love is lowering ourselves for the purpose of elevating others. When you read 2 Corinthians 11, at least for me, and up until this point, I think we can say that is an impossible task. I can't do that. No way. That's an impossible task. How How? Can we do that? How can that be the expectation on us to be lowered in that way? And if it feels overwhelming and if it feels impossible, that's because it is. And the only way we can do it is the same way that Paul did it. By trusting and embracing the ultimate counterweight who is Jesus Christ. The Apostle John said it this way in 1 John 3, 16-18. He said, By this we know love, that He, Jesus, laid down, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so ultimately, it's the love of Jesus in our hearts 
that enables us to be lowered in that way. It's because Jesus first laid down His life for us that we can do the same to those around us. In that verse that Pamela read from Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 starts by saying, Therefore, as beloved children, be imitators of God. So you can't just take on, I've got to imitate God and I've got to lay down my life and I've got to do this in order that others might be elevated without first realizing that He laid down His life for you and you can be a beloved children. As beloved children, be an imitator of God. You don't imitate God so that you can become a beloved child. God's done something for us. We think of how huge it was of the, the height that Paul, the depth that Paul lowered himself for the Corinthians. It's nothing compared to what Jesus has done for you. The height of the riches that Jesus had in heaven. The height of the comfort that Jesus had in heaven. The height of the honor and the praise that Jesus had in heaven. And yet he lowers himself. And yet he lowers himself. And so when we're tempted to hold on to financial security, 2 Corinthians 8-9 says, Though Jesus was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. When we're tempted to overvalue our physical comfort, 1 Peter 4-12 and 13 says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And when we're tempted to prize honor and praise, Isaiah 53 reminds us that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. If love is lowering ourselves for the purpose of elevating others, then nobody did that like Jesus. Nobody loves like Jesus loves. And He raises us. We sang about it this morning. We talked about it this morning. The height that Jesus raises us from dead in our sin to alive in Him. And so we can't just take all those questions and put them on us and just think, oh, I need to do this more and I need to do that more and I need to be lowering myself without having our eyes fixed on the one who lowered himself for us. And there's nothing that we would give up that in the end we won't say it was worth it. Even if it's as small as getting up from the couch to play with your kids when you don't want to to something huge and big and life-changing. There's nothing that we not, won't lower ourselves from that in the end we won't say it was worth it. It was worth it. And for myself, as a part of this church, I just want to say it's a huge privilege to be a part of a church where I see this being played out. 
I see people lowering themselves for the elevation of others. And so what a privilege, what a blessing it is to be in a church where you see it in so many people, so many times. People willingly lowering themselves so that others might be elevated. It's such a blessing. I see it in Keith and Sue. I see them willingly lowering themselves so that others might be elevated. I see it in Gail and Emma and Nikki and Krista coming in to volunteer their time throughout the week in the office. There's a lowering there so that others might be elevated. I see it in Kids Club on Saturday morning. I see it with our fuel team on Friday night. There's a lowering so that others might be elevated. I see it in families like the Lavers and the Lewises who serve and pray and serve and pray and serve and pray without any recognition. And I know it's genuine because I see it in their kids as well. I see it. I see a lowering so that others might be elevated. And it's a great blessing to be a part of a church where I see it happening. And all I'm asking for is for God to do more in us. It's for God to do more in us. I'm asking for God to do more in my own life because I know in my own life I'm more apt to sit on the couch and not even be lowered from my comfort in that way. So it's such a blessing to see it. And we're just asking God for more. Let's pray. Why don't we stand up as we pray?